Again, if you're just joining us, welcome. This is Christy Balsell speaking. I'm the Executive Director of Mito Action. Really excited to have everyone with us today. We're going to go ahead and get started. So I'm the Executive Director of Mito Action and um, thrilled to be with you guys, but really even more excited because today is really a special opportunity for a presentation. Today is Friday, March 4th, 2016, and it is one of our advocacy podcast series presentations today. We're really looking forward to hearing from the public policy team from the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Before we get started and I introduce today's moderator, which is who is Christine Cox, our MitoActions Director of Advocacy and Outreach, I want to remind everyone that there are a couple attachments you can refer to during today's presentation. If you go to mitoaction.org, and if you're listening to this as a recording, you probably just want to search the term NORD, N-O-R-D, in the search box in the upper right-hand corner. But if you're joining us live, mitoaction.org, and right in the center of the page under Recent News, go ahead and click on the title for today's presentation about NORD's public policy team discusses 2016 legislative agenda. And when you get to that page, you'll see in the middle of the page there are two PDFs that you can refer to. And we'll be uh, referring back to those, so take a moment and go ahead and download those as well. But we're going to have a great presentation today, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce um, my colleague, Christine Cox, who um, is an attorney and a tireless advocate for patients having a child with mitochondrial disease herself. She knows firsthand how challenging the day-to-day -day life of um, helping others understand how important it is to have access to care and services and a base understanding of the issues and challenges that we go through with mitochondrial disease and is really um, excited about the opportunity to help advance advocacy in the field of mitochondrial disease and mitochondrial medicine. So, um, Christine, I'll, I'll pass it over to you. Thank you so much for setting this up, and I'll let you take it from here and introduce the team from NORD as well. Terrific. Thank you so much, Christy. And as Christy said, this is um, a presentation that is part of our advocacy podcast series. I'm extremely excited about this series. It's something that we've recently added to the website. If you want to review this later on or link to any other of the uh, podcasts, if you go to the advocacy menu, you can see in the drop-down, we've got the advocacy podcast series right there. So um, without further ado, I'd like to thank the public policy team from NORD for joining us today. I'm very excited about these three speakers. We've got with us today Martha Rinker, who is the Vice President of Public Policy for NORD, and also Paul Melmeyer, who's the Assistant Director of Public Policy, and Tim Boyd, who's the Associate Director of Public Policy. And they're going to be talking today about the legislative priorities, both at the federal and state level for NORD, as well as the um, agency priorities, the work that they do with um, places like the FDA and the NIH. And without further ado, uh, Martha, Paul, and Tim, are you on the line? We are. I am. Well, terrific. Let's see. Paul and Tim, have you been able to join us yet? Yep. Thanks for having me. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Martha, let me go ahead and get started with you. If you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you'll be presenting today, that would be terrific. Well, thank you very much. Um, my name is Martha Rinker, as you were told. I am the Vice President of Public Policy for NORD. Um, I have recently joined NORD. I've been here about four months, and um, it's a really exciting and wonderful place to work because the issues we work on are so important. Um, and I will be giving you sort of an overview about um, NORD's advocacy um, uh, and what we're focusing on this year. And then Paul Melmeyer will take over and talk about the federal regulatory and legislative activities. And Tim Boyd, who does our state work, will be talking about um, some of the state activities we've taken on. Um, as you all know, Monday was Rare Disease Day, and so it was a very, very busy week for us here, particularly in Washington. And Tim was on the road a lot. We haven't seen him much. That's what happens when you have people who do state work. They spend a lot of time in the states. We're a small group. There's just three of us in the Nord Public Policy Office. Um, and we work very hard to be the unified voice of the rare disease community. Uh, Nord now has about 250 members' uh, organizations, but we try to represent the voice of all rares. Um, we advocate for national awareness and recognition of the challenges faced by people living with rare diseases and those associated costs to society. We support a nation where people uh, with rare diseases can secure access to diagnostics and therapies that extend and improve their lives. We hope to foster social, political, and financial culture to innovate and that innovation would support both basic and transitional research necessary to create diagnostic tests and therapies for all rare disorders. And we support a regulatory environment that encourages development and timely approval of safe and effective diagnostics, drugs, biologics, humanitarian devices, and access to medical foods. Um, we here in the office work on federal and state advocacy particularly, but we also are involved in, in education, uh, educating our members about advocacy, how to advocate for themselves and their families. Um, and we also um, work with our um, parent offices. We're here based in Washington. Um, NORD is based in Connecticut and Massachusetts, where they have patient registries, patient assistance programs, and research programs. So with that, because I know what you really want to hear about what's going on the day-to-day -day in our federal and state advocacy programs, I'm going to turn it over to Paul Melmeyer to talk to you about a lengthy list of federal activities. Thank you, Martha, and thank you, uh, Christy and Christine. I am Paul Melmeyer. I'm the Associate Director of Public Policy here at NORD, and I focused uh, pretty mainly on uh, federal affairs, our federal congressional and regulatory activity. So before I get into what is going on in rare disease policy on the federal level today, I just want to uh, turn back the clock just a little bit back to 1983 with the Orphan Drug Act. Orphan Drug Act is the seminal piece of legislation uh, for rare diseases. It includes various different, very important incentives for drug development in rare diseases. Uh, before 1983, there were only about, uh, I believe, 10 different orphan products that were developed by industry in the prior decade to 1983. Since then, there have been over 500 products developed by industry uh, for, for orphan diseases. The incentives included within the Orphan Drug Act, including uh, market exclusivity of seven years, as well as the orphan drug tax credit exemptions from um, FDA user fees, 
and a few other things have obviously proven their efficacy. So over the last 33 years, uh, NORD was founded following the passage of the Orphan Drug Act by the very same advocates who successfully passed the Orphan Drug Act. Over the last 33 years, we have really focused our policy attention in three different areas. First, we have focused on fostering research into rare diseases, and um, we work very closely with the NIH and uh, the institutes within the NIH involved in rare disease research. We also work with NCATS, the National Center of Advanced and Translational Sciences within the NIH, um, to encourage rare disease research. And within NCATS, there is the Office of Rare Diseases Research. They are really the coordinating body within the NIH uh, when it comes to uh, coordinating with the different institutes within the NIH, coordinating with the different uh, PIs and uh, researchers and others within, within the NIH and outside the NIH as well. So for any questions regarding the NIH and their involvement in rare disease research, uh, it's the Office of Rare Diseases Research within NCATS who are the people to go to. We also uh, work in rare disease policy and rare disease research policy outside specifically the NIH, um, just trying to foster uh, as much of a favorable rare disease research environment as possible. A recent example of that is our comments on the proposed changes to the common rule that was released back in September of last year. Um, our comments were released on Jan in, in early January in regards to how that common rule update may affect uh, rare disease research um, potentially in a detrimental way. And of course, we also advocate uh, and we also work with um, medical societies and physicians and medical students to try to foster uh, the future generation of rare disease researchers and rare disease physicians. A second area we're very active in is the regulatory process and the drug development uh, atmosphere for, for rare disease therapeutics. We have advocated for expedited review pathways within the FDA for rare disease therapies. Um, they're oftentimes uh, deemed as breakthrough therapies or that they are worthy of accelerated approval or priority review just because the public need within the rare disease is, is so high that as quickly as the FDA can safely review the products, um, the better. We'll also advocate for greater patient involvement throughout the entire drug development process well, within uh, both within the FDA and outside the FDA. And that includes various things such as uh, strengthening the special government employee program to allow patients to be able to participate within FDA processes, uh, implementation of various different provisions within the Food and Drug Administration Safety and Innovation Act passed back in 2012, um, as well as several other patient involvement opportunities um, across, the agent, uh, across the centers within the agencies. We advocate for um, flexibility in clinical trial design within rare diseases, as well as advocating for increased funding for the FDA. We are members of the Alliance for a Stronger FDA, um, which has been around for about 10 years now, and that organization advocates for increased appropriations for the FDA and uh, to ensure that the FDA is well-funded to ensure that they are able to do their job and able to review therapies in a safe and um, expedited manner. Finally, the third area we are very active in is in the delivery of therapies. There are only about 500 orphan therapies right now treating 400 orphan diseases, and so there's obviously a very long way to go before um, even just half of all rare diseases have an FDA-indicated treatment. But there are still various delivery and reimbursement problems that many within the rare disease community face, regardless of if they are accessing a therapy on the label or off the label. Uh, we're seeing an increasing use of co-insurance 
costs within um, plans that would require individuals to pay a high percentage of the cost of the, the drug, possibly thousands of dollars per month um, until they reach their out-of-pocket maximum. Uh, there are obviously very various reimbursement problems for medical food, something I'm, I know that this community is very well aware of. Um, there are difficulties in expanded access and compassionate use, accessing therapies that are still within the clinical trial process but may very well be beneficial for an individual to obtain if they are not able to qualify for the clinical trial itself. 80% of rare diseases are treated off-label, and so off-label indications are oftentimes not covered by insurance because they are thought to be experimental, yet they are incredibly important for rare disease patients to be able to obtain these therapies off-label. And so just ensuring that they are able to obtain the therapies through their insurance and that the insurance will indeed cover it is very important. We're active in the various different uh, programs within the ACA and the implementation of those programs, including the uh, prohibition of discrimination upon uh, pre-existing conditions, as well as various other anti-discrimination facets within insurance design. We work with the Social Security Administration on their Compassionate Allowances Program, um, as well as uh, advocating for and uh, uh, a better environment around the reimbursement of diagnostics. And I, Tim will go into uh, m most of these more in depth on the state side because many of these are more uh, are, are within state jurisdictions. So now I want to turn to what's going on today. Uh, first, in, uh, in uh, congressional in, in the congressional atmosphere, and then second, regulatorily. So I think many people have heard about the 21st Century Cures Initiative, and this is an initiative that was started back in 2014 by Chairman Fred Upton of the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee in the House of Representatives, as well as his colleague Diana DeGette, a Democrat, uh, also of the Energy and Commerce Committee. And these two individuals really wanted to look at the discovery, uh, development, and delivery system for treatments and cures to see where uh, the, the pitfalls were and what could be improved. And so over the course of about a year and a half, they held various roundtables. They released uh, several white papers calling for comments, and Nord was very pleased to be able to participate throughout this, uh, this process that happened mostly in the summer and fall of 2014 and then into the um, winter and spring of 2015. And in the end, the 21st Century Cures Act was the final product. And that bill has various different, very important reforms for the rare disease community, which I'll get into a little bit more in a minute. But the 21st Century Cures Act was indeed passed by the House of Representatives in, in early July of last year, and thus it now has to go over to the Senate. And the Senate is uh, about, about this time last year, maybe in January of 2015, launched their own parallel initiative called the Senate Innovation for Healthier Americans Initiative. And this was not necessarily in response to the 21st Century Cures. The, the Senate staff and senators will tell you uh, very vehemently that it is an independent initiative and that they will independently develop policies. Um, but it will likely result in legislation, or at least hopeful that it will result in legislation, that will be able to be uh, combined with the 21st Century Cures Act into an enacted bill that President Obama will be able to sign before uh, the end of the year. So going back to 21st century cures, I want to talk about a few provisions that we believe are very important to the rare disease community that were passed by the House and that are now under consideration in the Senate. 
First, the 21st Century Cures Act uh, increased NIH funding substantially. Over the next four years, there would be $1.75 billion, $1 billion of additional mandatory funding for the NIH in the form of an NIH Innovation Fund. And there would also be an additional $1.5 billion each of the next three years in discretionary funding. The mandatory funding is important because it means that it does not have to go through the Appropriations Committee. It can just be authorized by the, um, by the Authorizing Committee, in this case, the Energy and Commerce Committee, um, and over in the Senate, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Obviously, NIH funding is something that's very important to us. NIH funding has been very flat over the last 10 to 15 years. And we were very pleased to see an additional $2 billion of funding for the NIH passed in the December Omnibus Agreement. But there, we need to make sure that that is sustainable and that there is going to be an increase of funding each of the next four or five years to ensure the NIH is able to conduct the very, very important research for rare disease patients. Also included within the 21st Century Cures Act was the establishment of a national neurological disease surveillance system. And that actually also is a standalone bill. The bill number is S849. And it establishes a registry at the CDC of neurological diseases and of uh, data collected from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. There's very little known about neurological diseases and their prevalence, incidence, and uh, general um, symptoms and progression within the United States. And so um, any kind of data collection it would be very important. And so we, we are supportive of this bill. However, I will mention that in the Senate, just about a couple weeks ago, they did look at this bill. It was actually February 9th. And they only limited the diseases to be included within the surveillance system to the five most prevalent diseases. So obviously that would eliminate all of the rare diseases that may be beneficial. So we're still uh, working with the Senate Health Committee to try to ensure that all neurological diseases are included within that bill. Also within 21st Century Cures uh, would be the, is funding for uh, rare disease natural history studies. There is the continuation of the patient-focused drug development initiative, as well as uh, a process for qualifications of uh, biomarkers and surrogate endpoints within the FDA. A bill that the Senate Health Committee has already reviewed is the Advancing Targeted Therapies for Rare Diseases Act, and that bill number is S2030. That bill clarifies that the FDA is allowed to extrapolate data from previously approved applications for a targeted drug to a new therapy that incorporates essentially the same technology. Um, this is very important for diseases that have various genetic subsets of the same disease. An example would be Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, Duchenne's, while it has uh, essentially the same phenotype, may have uh, it has 10 to 15 different genetic subsets or genotypes. And for a targeted therapy to really get at the genetic origin of the disease, um, essentially you would need to create 15 different drugs for the 15 different genetic subsets. And so instead of a company having to go through the entire clinical tri trial process for each of those different drugs, it might only change one little thing within the formula, which would be the specific gene that it's targeting, then uh, instead the FDA can take the application and the safety data submitted from the prior application and just reuse that if they deem it appropriate. It is entirely up to the FDA if they deem that appropriate. And this would be very important to the very tiny genetic subsets of diseases, maybe only a handful of patients that otherwise would have very little hope of having any attention being paid, toward, paid towards them by pharmaceutical companies. So that bill, again, S2030, uh, it's already been passed by the House. 
It passed out of the Senate Help Committee on February 9th, and now it just needs to be addressed by the full Senate. And we're very hopeful that that will be um, looked at over the next couple months. Also included with 21st Century Cures is a provision on expanded access transparency that would require pharmaceutical companies to, um, to, to, to list their expanded access policies on their website, as well as a phone number or an email or just someone to get in contact with at a pharmaceutical company uh, for expanded access requests. There are, there's a provision on off-label communications, uh, on priority review of breakthrough devices, as well as an expansion of the humanitarian device exemption program within the FDA from a limitation of 4,000 cases per year up to 8,000 cases per year, which we believe is a very important expansion. The OPEN Act, or the Orphan Product Extension Now Act, is a bill that extends exclusivity by six months to any drug that would add a rare disease indication onto the label. And this really gets at the problem of off-label uh, use and off-label therapies. I mentioned earlier that off-label therapies, or accessing a therapy off-label, I should say, comes with all sorts of reimbursement problems. And so by actually placing that rare disease onto the label, that may indeed uh, address many of those reimbursement problems. Also, for a company to do a small clinical trial for a rare disease that is already potentially benefiting from a drug but off-label, that company can do the clinical trial and then have a better information on dosage and prescribing information, something that is generally lacking in most off-label uses. So we are very supportive of the OPEN Act. It was included within 21st Century Cures. And it's also its own standalone bills, S1421, as well as HR971. And we're hopeful that the Senate will act on the OPEN Act and pass that as part of the Senate Innovations for Healthier Americans initiative. We're also very active in the reauthorization of the Rare Pediatric Disease Priority Review Voucher Program. Many of you know that this is a incentive program that was first passed as part of the Food, Drug, Food and Drug Administration Safety and Innovation Act back in 2012. And this would uh, award a priority review voucher to any company that develops a drug for a rare pediatric disease. That company then can use that priority review voucher for a future drug of their own um, that would not have otherwise qualified for priority review within the FDA, or they can sell that priority review voucher to another company. And that voucher has shown that it is incredibly, incredibly valuable. In fact, the latest voucher sold for about $350 million. And it's very valuable because priority review, priority review means that uh, a drug is reviewed in six months' time rather than 10 to 12 months' time within the FDA. And if there are two drugs that are racing to market, trying to be the first to market, that additional four to six months of a head start um, is incredibly valuable for a company. And so these vouchers are very valuable, and they are, we believe, a, a great incentive for developing within the rare pediatric disease space. The original legislation called for a sunset after, uh, so called for the, 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 the program to end one year after the third voucher was awarded. The third voucher was awarded on March 16th of 2015, and so the program was originally scheduled to end actually just a couple weeks from now. However, the program was extended as part of the December omnibus bill 
through September 30th of this year. And we're now working on extending it even further, hopefully permanently, because for any incentive for a pharmaceutical company and for pharmaceutical development to work, it needs to respect the pharmaceutical cycle of a drug taking upwards of 10 to 12 years to develop. So any reauthorization below 10 to 12 years would not necessarily be as strong of an incentive as it would be if it was permanently reauthorized. That bill is also being addressed by the uh, Senate Health Committee on March 9th. They have a hearing scheduled for Wednesday where they're addressing the priority review voucher program. They're looking at combination devices. They're also looking at the priority review for breakthrough devices bill. Um, and they're looking at several other bills as well. So these are all kind of, all, all of these, these bills are encompassed within the 21st Century Cares Act. It has already passed the House, and we would be incredibly happy if the Senate passed um, the same bill, uh, maybe with even some additional provisions that are beneficial to the rare disease community this year as well, so we can make sure that it is enacted into law. Unfortunately, the Senate is facing kind of an uphill battle for several reasons, one being that drug pricing has really dominated the discussion in pharmaceutical policy over the past year or so. And any uh, bill that could be passed that could be beneficial to the pharmaceutical industry is going to face some stiff opposition in certain corners of the Senate. Also, it's a presidential year. It's an election year. And that makes it uh, all the more difficult to pass anything within Congress. And because it's an election year for 33% uh, of the Senate, uh, they're only really going to be working until about May of this year. And the rest of the year is going to pretty much be spent out campaigning or only getting absolutely necessary business done within the Senate. So we only have a couple months left to pass any of these provisions. And so um, with, with the very limited schedule and with the uh, all of the, the headwinds on drug pricing as well as all of the controversy within elections and just making everything more difficult um, and, and making it more difficult to work across the aisle within an election year, um, it is going to be very difficult to pass any of these. However, we remain hopeful. We still have been seeing progress. As I said, on February 9th, the Senate Health Committee did move forward with several bills. They will likely move forward with several other important bills coming up on March 9th. And then they have one final hearing scheduled on April 6th to review any other additional legislation that they want to include within their Senate Innovation for Healthier Americans initiative. So that is kind of just a bit of an overview in the legislative, uh, congressional and federal legislative uh, atmosphere right now. It really is focused on the 21st Century Cures Act and the Senate Innovation for Healthier Americans initiative. Just coming down the road, just a little bit further, is the Prescription Drug User Fee Act reauthorization, as well, and that the acronym is PDUFA, as well as the Medical Device User Fee Act reauthorization, the Biosimilar User Fee Act reauthorization, and the Generic Drug User Fee Act reauthorization. All of these are on the same calendar. And the acronyms for those are PDUFA, MEDUFA, BASUFA, and GADUFA, which I will be using for the rest of the call because spelling the names out just takes too long. Each of these are on the same schedule uh, that's on a five-year reauthorization schedule, and each of these user fee programs essentially fund the FDA. The FDA is funded, um, the majority FDA funding comes from user fees from industry. So not only do these programs fund the FDA, but they also provide the general community, both the pharmaceutical community as well as the patient community, the entire stakeholder community, with an opportunity to reform the FDA in ways that would be beneficial to the drug development and review process, the medical device development and review process, as well as any other policy 
that might be um, included within, uh, might be beneficial to FDA processes. So right now within the reauthorization process, the FDA has been holding monthly stakeholder meetings with patient groups just to hear what patient groups would like to see within the PDUFA, MADUFA, and others, uh, the other UFA reauthorizations. We participated in the very first stakeholder meeting back over the summer, and in that meeting we laid out our priorities for the PDUFA reauthorization as well as the MADUFA reauthorization. First and foremost, as I said before, it's very important to fund the FDA at, a, at an appropriate level to ensure that they are able to do their job, to ensure that they are able to review drugs, to ensure that they're safe, and that they can get to market to our patients as quickly as possible. We also want to see a continuation of the Patient-Focused Drug Development Initiative. This is an initiative that was passed originally in FIDASIA back in 2012, and that initiative has so far included about 20 meetings, disease-specific meetings with patients, um, when they come to the FDA and they talk about their experience with the disease, um, their willingness to participate within clinical trials, and what they really want to see in therapies going forward. And this is really an incredible program that allows the FDA to hear directly from the patients, something that has historically been lacking within FDA regulatory processes. And while we're happy to see that those 20 meetings have been successful, those are only 20 meetings for 20 diseases. And there are 7,000 rare diseases and 10,000 diseases in general. So obviously there's a ways to go and, 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 and there has to be a lot more effort being put in to include all of the other disease populations within these processes. This could mean outside meetings that are held by patient organizations that the FDA will attend so the FDA doesn't have to plan it themselves. It can also include draft guidances that, that patient organizations can craft and then give to the FDA on development, drug development within their specific space. Kind of the model for this last uh, option has been the Duchenne's community that has uh, crafted a draft guidance and gave that to the FDA on drug development within Duchenne muscular dystrophy. The FDA then took that draft guidance and actually just tweaked a little bit and then uh, put their own draft guidance out there on drug development within Duchenne's, which is incredibly uh, uh, important to industry who is looking to develop within that space. A third priority that we listed for the PDUFA reauthorization is ensuring that patients are able to participate within FDA processes and that they are not affected by adverse conflict of interest determinations. The FDA currently has a one-size-fits-all process for determining conflict of interest within physicians, within researchers, within patients, within whomever. And we don't believe that's necessarily beneficial, particularly because patients are oftentimes excluded simply because they have volunteered with a patient organization that has worked with a pharmaceutical company at some point in the past. And so that automatically disqualifies them from participating within FDA processes. And since the rare disease community is so small, um, there are oftentimes only maybe a handful of experts, whether they be patients or physicians, who may be able to um, give expert testimony and, uh, to the FDA when it comes to their disease. So we want to see the conflict of interest process within the FDA uh, given a very hard look to ensure that patients and physicians and researchers are able to participate within the FDA, specifically those who are connected to the rare disease community. A fourth priority we have within PDUFA reauthorization is uh, an increase in cross-center collaboration. Currently, uh, the, the, there are three main medical centers within the FDA. There's a Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, there's a Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, and the Center for Device and Radiological Health. 
And each of them are doing really great work, uh, particularly within new and innovative patient involvement opportunities, but there's very little coordination between the three different centers. And we want to see increased coordination between those three centers specifically uh, when it comes to patient involvement opportunities. Now, PADUFA and MADUFA and BASUFA and GADUFA aren't the only regulatory games in town. We're also working with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to ensure the patients are able to access therapies, whether they be orphan therapies or otherwise, as well as the Social Security Administration with their Compassionate Allowances Program to ensure that individuals who qualify for disability are able to um, uh, gain that disability uh, qualification sooner rather than later. So I think I'm going to pause there. That was a very uh, rapid introduction to what we're doing these days within the Nord Federal Policy uh, Office. I'll, I'll pause and I'll turn it over to Tim for the state stuff. Thanks, Paul. <clears throat> Excuse me, and hi everyone. Um, so before I get started, you know, Paul kind of ran through some very specific legislative initiatives on the federal level. Um, given the nature of our state policy work and the state process, there being 50 states and hundreds of committees of jurisdiction and thousands of bills, um, I'm not going to be able to kind of go through all of the legislation that NOAA is working on on the state level, but I'm going to kind of cover things from a 10,000-foot from a, a, a level and provide specific examples. But all of the main priority legislative targets that we're working on, I think, are going to be um, hosted on the MITO Action website um, to accompany this presentation. So from a state policy perspective, you know, NORD is really kind of approaches the issue of state implementation of, of ACA and other issues from kind of a, a, a relatively common perspective, which is one, there are a host of policy issues pertinent to the rare disease community um, that are solely within the jurisdiction of state government. Um, and examples of those include like uh, newborn screening, which diseases are screened for at birth in certain states, um, the, the management of uh, physician practice is, is traditionally solely a, a state legislative or, or state government issue. Um, so there are a host of things that frankly that, you know, coming out of ACA and other legislative initiatives um, that the federal government has no jurisdiction over. So it's important. Um, for NORD and other organizations to kind of be involved in those issues because uh, simply focusing on the federal side um, leaves many gaps. In addition, you know, states, I think traditionally there's a term that states are the laboratory of democracy. Um, given the kind of the, 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 the more insular politics of states, it's often possible for them to address issues um, before the federal government gets around to doing it. So many of the state issues uh, we work on do have federal counterparts, federal legislative counterparts that are being pursued on a national level, but states often kind of take the initiative um, in the absence of federal action. Um, and at times, you know, pursuing some of the solutions to these issues, such as uh, cost sharing, which I'll get into, benefits from not only NORD and, and rare advocates working on them on a federal issue, but also addressing them at the state level. Um, so in general, our focus on state policy really is, is, is keyed in on advancing policy solutions, addressing key issues for the rare disease community. Um, you know, that I think we kind of look at the total experience of a rare disease patient or a rare family and think about kind of the barriers that they encounter and, and what are the policy mechanisms that need to be implemented to address those. So, for example, um, we really are, are make access to care, including health benefits coverage, a priority um, in our state policy work, and I'll get into more specifics there in a minute. 
Um, in addition, we really focus on accurate and timely diagnoses um, to make sure that people are actually not having to go through that diagnostic odyssey um, to find out what is going on with them um, or their child. And then finally, physician education, um, really making sure that uh, the medical community is aware of rare disease and is aware um, that there are, you know, potential diagnoses uh, and, and ailments that are kind of outside their, their comfort zone that, that may, um, that their patients may be experiencing. And so I, I know many of you kind of recognize that that's a huge issue in making sure that your physician is actually knowledgeable about your disorder. And oftentimes it's incumbent upon the rare disease patient themselves to actually be their own advocate when it comes to their healthcare, um, because there's simply no one else there who is that knowledgeable about their disorder. So I'm gonna run you know, briefly through each of these kind of main categories. So in terms of access to care um, and health coverage, NORD on the state level really advocates for policies that affect insurance plan benefit design, both within uh, the private commercial market, um, such as the, the health care marketplaces or the exchanges, um, but also public programs such as Medicaid and the, and the Children's Health Insurance Program um, and the Women, Infants, and Children Program. So a couple examples of bills that we work on in this space. Uh, the, the main one, or at least our priority this legislative session, um, has to do with prescription drug cost sharing. Um, and so that issue is really pertains to how much patients have to pay for their drug when they pick it up each month at the pharmacy. Um, and what we have seen is that since the adoption of the a ACA, which um, prohibits insurance plans from discriminating against people on the basis of having a pre-existing condition, plans have kind of explored new ways to get around that requirement and limit the amount of cost that they have to pay um, for their beneficiaries. And so one of the ways they do that is through the, the use of tiers on their drug formularies. So if you have a prescription drug plan, plan often um, depending on what tier the drug is in on that covered plan, it has a different cost sharing associated with it. Um, and traditionally these tiers were used as a way to encourage people to uh, take a, a less expensive treatment option or take a generic when it is available. But what we're, seeing, what we're seeing increasingly is that tiered cost sharing or, or tiered formularies are used to really put the drugs to treat the sickest people in the most complex conditions um, on the highest cost sharing tier, regardless of whether or not there are multiple treatment options available, regardless of whether there are um, generics available. And so as you can imagine what this means for rare disease patients who are lucky to actually have a treatment available. And I know that that's, you know, for many, uh, for the Mito community, there are very few, if, if any, treatments available um, that would be covered by a health plan. And so typically what we see is that rare disease patients, the one treatment that, ha that they have that can help them is on the highest cost sharing tier. Um, that means they have to pay upwards of 50% of the actual cost of the drug each month just to get their prescription. Um, which can equal about thousands of dollars in cost sharing um, over the course of a few months. And so NORD is supporting state efforts to uh, restrict the amount of cost sharing um, that health plans can charge uh, for medication. So for example, um, there are several states this, this session that we are prioritizing this issue on. In Massachusetts, we are supporting a bill, SB 541, that would cap the total amount of cost sharing a patient has to pay per medication at $100 per 30-day supply of a drug, um, and it prohibits a health plan from putting 
all medications within a single class on the highest cost-sharing tier. <clears throat> and so that bill was a, a focus of our Rare Disease Day event um, in Massachusetts this past uh, Monday, um, which was a great success. And we're hoping actually to potentially move that through committee and pass it into law this year. And there are several other states um, that are looking at similar legislation. In Connecticut, there's HB 5517, which was actually just introduced um, this session a couple days ago, and that bill will actually be up for a hearing on March 10th, and NOAA will be participating in that hearing, giving testimony about the bill. In Illinois, there's HB 3605, which again implements that $100 cap per 30-day supply. Um, and in Ohio, there's SB 135. Um, in Pennsylvania, there's SB 841. And Virginia, uh, they're taking a slightly different tack. Virginia is looking at SB 442 this session, and that bill um, does not include a cap on the total cost of medications. It simply prohibits all medications within a single class from being put on the highest cost-sharing tier. Um, so that that is the main priority for us this session in terms of kind of insurance benefit design and health coverage. However, there's some other issues that we've also kind of weighed in on. Um, in particular, you know, Nord is adamant and I think focuses heavily on the coverage of medical foods within uh, health plans to be on par with prescription drugs. I mean, as you, as the Milo community is well aware of, for many people, low-protein foods are, are, are medically necessary foods are often the only way to manage or treat uh, their condition. Um, yet far too often, states do not treat these medically necessary foods the same way as other treatments are, are prescription drugs. And so Nord is um, heavily involved in trying to promote robust coverage and re robust coverage requirements and, and plans to require medical foods to be covered on the same basis as um, other treatments. And specifically, um, this session, we are supporting a bill in New York, um, AB 5174 and its counterpart SB 3250, which would expand coverage of medical foods um, and private health plans for people with mitochondrial disease. And I know that MitoAction is actually pursuing similar legislation to that in Massachusetts um, and other states. Um, so that's kind of the main issues on, on access to care and coverage design that we're working on. In terms of accurate and timely diagnosis, um, as I mentioned, newborn screening programs are largely under the discretion of state governments. And, and what that means is that the state legislature or the state um, newborn screening board has discretion on which diseases are screened for at birth and not. However, in general, states try to adhere to federal recommendations um, that are put out recommending which conditions be screened for at birth, um, the so-called recommended uniform screening panel. And so this session, there are a multitude of states that are considering bills that are disease-specific um, that would update the newborn screening program within that state to cover a new disorder such as SCID, um, uh, severe combined immunodeficiency, which is recommended by the federal government, but is one condition that um, far too few states cover. Um, but in addition, I think, you know, from the rare disease perspective, we look at the newborn screening issue um, somewhat differently. With, and traditionally in public health, you know, the, the standard for whether or not to, to mandate screening for the disease really depends on whether or not anything to be done with that diagnosis. Is there a treatment available um, primarily? And so that dynamic, you know, 
it's been usually it's the standard by which newborn screening is, is for diseases either included in a panel or not. Um, however, we don't believe that holds up really with for the rare disease community. We feel like the rare disease patient kind of breaks the typical public health mold when it comes to screening, primarily because the diagnosis itself and kind of that answer to the question of what is going on with me, what is going on with my child, um, could have such a profound impact on their health and their planning moving forward. Um, so typically, newborn screening programs won't cover a disease if there's no treatment available for it. However, Nord believes that, you know, sometimes the diagnosis itself can be a huge benefit to the family and the patient and can also help the state and the family avoid, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in unnecessary health costs and trying to track down what exactly is going on with them. And so this session, uh, we are supporting several bills that would expand the newborn screening program in states beyond what the federal government is recommending. And specifically, um, we are pushing for states to uh, expand their screening programs to include um, diseases that are, are con considered lysosomal storage disorders. Um, so many lysosomal storage disorders are not, such as, such as uh, uh, CRAB-A, are not recommended by the federal government for newborn screening, um, but we think states should take the initiative and cover those disorders in their program. In addition, this year, actually just recently, I think last fall, um, Pompeii disease was uh, recently added to federal recommendations, and there are several states that have taken that up um, in specific legislation. Uh, in addition, within the kind of the, the realm of accurate and timely diagnosis, one of the a recent issues that NORD has become increasingly involved in is the issue of genetic counselor uh, licensure. Um, so in most states, um, people cannot call themselves a genetic counselor without specific training and, and licensing from uh, the state board, similar to, you know, how a nurse would be certified or how a doctor would be certified. However, that is not the case in all states. Um, some states do not have specific legislation on the books requiring someone who is a genetic counselor to go through a specific training or be certified by the state medical board. Um, we think that's a critical issue because we want to ensure that people who are, are accessing a genetic counselor, if they're getting that genetic testing, um, that they actually are getting someone who's giving them accurate information and has been trained um, on genetic information and genetic screening. And finally, uh, one of the issues that I guess trying to figure out the best way to put this. But, you know, as I mentioned, there are, there are obviously there are 50 different states, hundreds of different committees, thousands of different bills, um, and states really take a very segmented approach a lot of times to these policy issues. And so unlike on the federal side where it's possible for um, a committee or stakeholders to address certain issues in a very comprehensive way, um, a lot of times, states, it happens in a very ad hoc way. And oftentimes, even one person or one family with a disease in the state can get their legislator and their committee to take up a bill. Um, so NORD traditionally tries to promote legislation and tries to promote um, policies that benefit the entire rare disease community. Um, that being said, we know we, we do recognize that some way the only way to achieve progress is kind of pursuing disease-specific bills at the state level, which is why we support um, the Mito Medical Food Bill in, in New York and other states. But one of the approaches we have taken to try to kind of benefit rare disease policy across the board for all disorders is through the implementation and creation of, of rare disease advisory councils. 
Um, so this is, this is an issue that came up originally in a few states in the Northeast and Rhode Island and Massachusetts that Nord wasn't directly involved in. Um, but states have kind of, those two states, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, proposed this idea of creating an advisory council made up of experts within the state to make recommendations to the legislature and the state government about um, the best policies for rare disease care, the, the changes that need to happen in state policy to benefit the rare disease community. And we, Nord really likes this idea. Um, we think it's a great way to kind of foster more in state government involvement in education on rare diseases. And so um, dating back to last year into this session, we have been supportive of several bills to address or create these rare disease advisory councils, uh, primarily or, or particularly um, in Connecticut last year, that state passed a law creating a rare disease advisory task force, um, which is currently taking nominations and should have, actually have its first meeting um, coming up uh, sometime in the next few months. In addition, Nord supported a bill and worked closely with advocates in North Carolina, which created a rare disease advisory uh, council that's being hosted by the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Um, and this session, uh, several of our rare disease day events are focused solely on the idea of creating one of these rare disease advisory councils. So in Illinois, we're working with some of our partners to try to get a advisory council going there. Um, in addition, um, our coalition in Kansas is trying to create a rare disease advisory council. Um, and finally, our actually our team uh, led by uh, the Federix Ataxia uh, Research Alliance, FARA in Pennsylvania, has uh, spearheaded the creation of a rare disease Senate caucus um, and will be pushing the idea of kind of a, a rare disease legislative task force um, in their event coming up on March 16th. So again, we feel that this notion, you know, it's very difficult at the state level to figure out what is the one kind of salient policy position or salient piece of legislation that could benefit the entire community. And we think these councils are a way um, to not only kind of foster more buy-in from legislators on rare diseases and kind of generate awareness for all the different policy positions out there, um, but also a way to educate them about the need for better policies and kind of educate them about how certain health care provisions within their state, you know, such as their implementation of the Affordable Care Act, and the setting up of their exchange plans um, may not necessarily benefit the rare disease community without certain fixes. And so that's kind of a, a legislative overview. And again, I, I apologize for not being able to go into too many state specifics. There's just too many to cover. Um, but you know, as you can imagine, and as Martha said at the outset of, of, of this presentation, there's only three of us in the policy office, and I'm the only one uh, responsible for our state policy implementation. And so being responsible for 50 states um, it raises a question of how do we actually go about doing this in any kind of comprehensive way. Um, and the way we do that really is we try to empower the local grassroots community in all of our states and empower local rare disease coalitions and really um, have NORD kind of be the policy support um, and the national support for what is essentially local action. Um, and how we're doing that is we, we may have heard about our rare action network um, our Rare Action Network, which was created uh, early last year, is kind of slowly growing, is our mechanism by which we support state-by-state uh, -state legislative efforts on these issues. You know, we rely on local advocates and local experts and local organizations um, to really advance these positions with, with NORD's help and NORD's support. Um, and so without that grassroots network, um, it would really be impossible for us to address um, a lot of these issues in any kind of comprehensive way. Um, and I think moving forward, you know, for many of you who access the Nord site on a regular basis, you've probably seen kind of the robust way 
in which we detail our federal policy positions and, and host federal documents on our website and kind of keep the rare community include into what we're doing on a federal basis. We're really trying to replicate that um, on the state and the state sphere. And our rare action network is a key part of that, I think, in the coming you know months. And by the end of this year, you're going to start to see a lot more resources um, that are specific to state policy and a lot more updates about what NORD is doing on the state policy level and ways to, for you to get involved. Uh, so that's just a brief overview of our state work. And um, Happy to turn it back over to you, Christine. Well, that is terrific, Tim. Thank you so much. And as a um, as a follow up on that, if a patient or a family member is interested in getting involved in the Rare Action Network, how would they go about doing that? Um, the best thing they could do is go to our Nord website, which is um, it has a link to sign up for Rare Action Network, uh, which is very quick and easy. Um, but one of the benefits of being, you know, one of the only people in Nord working on these issues is that. People could also just reach out directly to me, and I'm happy to follow up with them directly. So if, if there's legislation in your state um, or, or issues that you really are hoping to get NORD support on, um, feel free to reach out to me directly, and I'm sure that uh, you guys, uh, Christine, you could probably share my contact info with everyone after this presentation. Yes, absolutely. We will um, go ahead and post your contact information on um, on our blog post that talked about uh, this this podcast. And we also have on there um, a couple of summaries uh, that are in PDF form that are listed as attachments um, that summarize all of the bills that both Paul and Tim talked about. So if anybody wants to review a particular bill number or get more information, those are actually on the blog post that is, that is linked from the very first MITO Action page. Um, so that might be something for, for folks to review. Um, well, I want to thank you all, Martha, Paul, and Tim. This was a really tremendous uh, presentation, really great overview. And um, we're going to go ahead and we've got just a few minutes for questions. I want to um, open up the phone lines in just a minute, but if anybody can't um, can't submit a question uh, verbally, feel free to email me at outreach at mitoaction.org, and I'd be happy to share your question um, uh, over, over the phone lines as well. So um, let me go ahead and open up the phone lines here, and we'll see if anybody's got any questions for the panel. The conference is now in talk mode. Okay. Um, well, again, thank you so much. And does anyone have any questions um, for the panel today? I do. Terrific. Go ahead. Um, I was actually down in Illinois. I, I live in the suburban Chicago area. We just had um, the Rare Disease Day um, a few days ago down in Springfield, and I went down to that, talked with several different reps. And one thing that me and actually another friend that um, is involved with UMDF is trying to, you know, redo, it didn't pass last year, is a bill to get the mito cocktail covered. If um, you could kind of give me any information on how to really lobby to get that done. Well, I think the best thing, you know, as I, I think I should have said at the outset, NORD's ability is especially on the state policy front to support individual pieces of legislation is really dependent upon um, our members and our community bringing those things to us. So I'm happy actually to work with you on that bill. It's something we do strongly support. 
um, but I don't think we've weighed in on yet. Um, so I'm happy to kind of work with you directly on that and figure out some ways that we can work and support it in Illinois. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. No problem. And um, actually, I've got a question that just came in via email about compounded medications. Um, this is something that the FDA is considering right now and is important to our community because so many people take the mito cocktail in a compounded form, either due to sensitivities or because it helps them get all the components into one solution. Uh, does NORD have any position on compounded medications, and are you doing any advocacy around that? And Paul, is that one you can touch on? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, to be honest, not not too in depth. I do know that compounding was addressed by um, Congress, I believe, within the last year. However, I don't believe we played too much of an active role in the development of of that or within FDA policy. Um, but that does not mean that that has to be the case going forward. So, I um, would obviously like to learn more on uh, compounding policy and what rare disease patients are, are facing, the difficulties they may be facing, um, and what needs to be done within the FDA or within reimbursement or with, with uh, wherever. Okay. That's terrific. All right. Does anyone else on the line have, have any further questions for our panel? Okay. I have a question, actually. Go ahead. Hi, I have actually two. One is on this legislation when you go to your state, in my state, it's actually New York State, it, it seems to be such pushback because they say, oh, the disease is rare, therefore it doesn't impact enough people for us to spend a lot of time on. And I kind of see the other side, well, that means it's actually not going to cost as much money when you spread it across the state. But So I, I have a little trouble with how can the rare diseases have a voice when they are rare and they don't impact a lot of people and many people haven't heard of them and then, you know, even collectively they have a voice, but they're also different that it makes it hard. And then my second yeah. question is, <laughs> instead of going and, like, needing legislative for, legislation for mitocob supplements and maybe some meds for some other rare disease and then a supplement for a third rare disease, it would seem like it would make more sense to me to to have an overall legislation that sort of forces insurance companies to just cover things that are prescribed and documented as a need by their physicians. It seems like we're just bringing every little tiny raindrop in front of the legislations to get the insurance company to do what we pay them to do instead of just saying, come on, guys, do your job. Well, I, I may be you're very naive to the, that one. <laughs> you're, preaching to, you're preaching to the choir here um, on that issue. And I think, you know, that's, as I mentioned kind of in my talk on the state policy stuff, that's the challenge is trying to push comprehensive legislation that addresses some of these issues for everyone, not just kind of in a, in a raindrop way, as you put it. I think the challenge is that um, clearly, you know, to get a bit cynical here, there are hugely invested business interests um, in a state-by-state -state level and, you know, health plans in particular have a strong lobbying arm that like to uh, push back against these things. And so sometimes the best path to success is in the raindrop approach, at least on the state level. You know, one of the ways, you know, we can address it is, is address a lot of these issues is by saying that, you know, there's a, the policy remedy here is really 
only for a select population. Sometimes politically, that makes things easier. However, I, I do agree with you on kind of the, the, the broad-based approach that would kind of finally solve these problems once and for all. And I can tell you specifically within the medical food space um, and within a lot of conditions, Nord supports the policy by which essentially if the doctor prescribes it and deems it medically necessary, um, it should be covered. Uh, but making that policy kind of a, a reality is much difficult. And so that's why the raindrop approach um, is sometimes um, more beneficial. I would also, I just quickly add to that, I would also quickly add to that that a lot of times the the structure of existing law of how these problems are addressed is very much created in the raindrop approach, which I like that term. I'm going to take it from you now and start using it. Um, <laughs> but so like a lot of times there are many state laws that specifically list out which diseases are applicable to certain insurance coverage benefits. And so in order to change that, you have to kind of frame it in the language of what's already on the books. Um, and again, so it, it, sometimes it, it's, it's just the path of least resistance uh, to do it in that piecemeal way. I don't know, Paul, if you have any input on that from the federal perspective. Well, actually, no, I, 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 I was just going to say, Tim, I think you said it well. So no, no further input from me. Well, thank you very much. And um, I actually have a, a question um, following up on that, what Mary Beth was saying. Is there any opportunity to um, – to have, I guess, change at the within the FDA of how they categorize uh, medical foods or supplements. Is there any opportunity to do any advocacy there, um, and perhaps get a new category created that would be reimbursable by insurance? Is that something that Nord is looking into at this time? So our advocacy on medical foods from the federal perspective um, is kind of uh, in, in several different areas. Um, in regards to the FDA, we actually feel the FDA has done a reasonably good job in uh, clarifying the definitions of medical foods and uh, what they view as a medical food. And actually, the Office of Orphan Product Development within FDA, uh, I know, cares very deeply about medical foods and that they, they've worked very hard on medical foods and that they are always a receptive audience to, to listen about medical foods policy. Um, we see a, a bigger problem at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services because regardless of the clarity of uh, what a medical food is or is not, um, they are not reflecting any of that within their reimbursement policy. And obviously the private insurers in many of the states kind of follow CMS's lead when it comes to uh, reimbursements and coverage decisions. And so I think the, the, the bigger battle is with the uh, federal reimbursers, so CMS, and just educating them on the importance of medical foods and how medical foods aren't uh, kind of a, uh, any kind of an elective, uh, diet, diet, uh, an elective diet. It's absolutely 100% medically necessary, and that's something that I don't think has really filtered to the, the CMS quite yet. So that's been more of our focus federally and regulatorily um, on medical foods. And I think to, to step on Paul's toes a bit here on the federal side, I think one of the things within the context of policies that kind of benefit everyone, um, you know, the one of the reasons that FDA cannot be so decisive or weigh in on this so much is because of funding issues. And so actually some of the policies Nord supports 
and some of the, like, for example, increasing funding for FDA, that allows them to exert more authority and purview on some of these areas that they simply don't do now because they don't have the money or the resources to touch them. And if I could say something really quick about as far as the Mito cocktail, um, there was a lot of um, misconception as far as when I was going to talk to my legislators. They, When you explain to them that these are pharmaceutical grade, that these are for medical purpose, you know, because there's this misconception, well, you can go just get some CoQ10 or some B12, you know, over the counter at CVS or Walgreens. And when you explain, no, these are, this is, this is as a treatment and it's, you know, very, you know, pure pharmaceutical grade with pharmaceutical, you know, NDC numbers, and this is a medically necessary treatment, they just look at you like, well, why isn't that covered? They, you know, they get it. But I think that that, that really, maybe if we could have some sort of paper, like written up from NORD that we could take our legislators, I think that that would be helpful. Yeah, you're actually, you're inspiring me to get much more involved on the Mito cocktail issues because it's something that we haven't, I, personally, that I'm not overly familiar with. Um, and so I, I think I would be happy to do that on the state perspective. And I think, you know, it kind of, it speaks to a larger issue of, I mean, the, the question before is kind of how do we address some of these issues for such a rare population? I think this is kind of a perfect example where there are policies out there that govern these types of things for the broader chronic disease community. Um, it's just that they're not workable for the rare disease community. Um, so it's really, it's just a matter, as you as you mentioned, of educating them and making people aware of what the basic facts are of, say, the Mito cocktail and why they need to look at this specifically, um, even though it only affects kind of a, a small subset of the population. Well, Tim, that's very exciting that we're piquing your interest in the Mito cocktail. Yeah. I think we certainly can... Um, can can get a good group together to share information and combine resources so that we can really move these pieces of state legislation forward um, and and you know be presenting the same information to legislators across the country. I think there's a huge opportunity here. I have a question. This is Jan in California, and I entered the webinar uh, late, so forgive me if you've already covered this. When my son takes g generic. Uh, erythromycin, the antibiotic, he goes into a deep autism-like state, and I lose him for two to three days. So I'm having to pay out of pocket for non-generic ZPAC. How can I get the insurance to pay for it when he has Medicare, Medi-Cal? Um, so I think that that's probably an issue very specific to what the provisions are with medical medical, which I'm not familiar with off the top of my head, but I will say on on the cost sharing issue, California just this session has advanced um, legislation that limits cost sharing. I'm not sure the extent to which it applies to medical, um, but you know, I'm happy if you know if you send me some info offline, I'm happy to kind of look at that issue um, more in depth for you. And you are Tim. Yes, I am. Sorry. Yes, Tim. <laughs> Thank you. Terrific. Well, I think we've got time for just one more question. Has anybody got any anything they'd like to ask? Well, I've actually got um, I've got one more that just came in over email, and um, this is a question 
about cannabis oil, which is being used um, in, I guess, for for patients who have seizures and and other such conditions. Um, there's been a lot of activity around that in various states. And does have a have a position on? Um, it's a derivative of medical marijuana. Does um, Nord have a position on that um, for rare diseases? We do not have a specific position on uh, medical cannabis. It's just not something that we've really traditionally looked at. Although that being said, as I as I mentioned before, you know we are very much in the camp of that if a well-informed and expert physician recommends that for their patient, um, we tend to follow what the doctor thinks is best for their patient, um, assuming that they have all the information about rare diseases. And so I think you know that issue from North's perspective would kind of fall into that dynamic. I don't know, Martha or Paul, if you have anything to add to that. Great. Well, that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. So thank you for addressing that. Um, Well, this has been a terrific discussion. And as I mentioned before, we've got the um, summary of the legislation on the blog post that um, links to this, that will link to this podcast. And we'll also post, with permission, um, Tim's email. And then, Paul, is your email okay to share as well? Or um, is that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Terrific, terrific. So that we've got some um, contacts for you all at NORD uh, for both state and federal issues. Um, So, again, thank you all so much, uh, Martha, Paul, and Tim, and to, to all the patients and family members who participated. I think this was a really helpful overview and um, really appreciate your time and all of this great information. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us. All right. Thank you. Our pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.